This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. Hello, I'm Helen Mark, and thanks for downloading this episode of Radio 4's Open Country podcast, a series that brings you fascinating stories from every corner of the UK countryside. We hope you enjoy it. I'm in the Peak District, and I'm looking out across Derwent Reservoir, which is one of three reservoirs that string their way down through the Derwent Valley. There's Howden, and then Derwent that I'm looking out across, and then below that, on the far side of the dam, Lady Bower. And each of these dams has a story. So for this week's Open Country, I've come to discover those stories, and in particular, the slow revelation of the past. This outline here is the ruins of Derwent Hall, a Jacobean manor house with extensive gardens and uh, a lake. You can't see that much of it now, it's just rubble and ruins. I'm with Kath Hernshaw of the Bamford History Group. We're just walking down to the edge of this grassy bank. What we're looking at now is, of course, the Lady Bower Reservoir. That's right. Which, in most circumstances, is full to the brim. Yes. But because we had an exceptionally dry spring and summer, the water levels went down so far that people could walk out and see the remains of the village that was. These beautiful villages were flooded because of the need for water. In the industrial cities. In the industrial Mm -hmm. cities of the East Midlands. And so the valley was flooded in 1945. There's a large sort of cluster of stones on the far side there as well, just on the water's edge. They're the ruins of Derwent Church. And that Um, is just a pile of rubble now. That is a pile of rubble. There is a footpath which leads down. It's now going back under the water. About every 20 years, when we have a dry summer these buildings or the ruins of them become visible and then it will fill up again this winter and it will just be there will be nothing to see just water was it incredibly fascinating to see that or was there something very sad about it it was a bit of both really as a history group we've purchased an album of photographs at auction the Bashupton and Derwent which was the two two villages villages. Mm -hmm. the one that we're looking at now is Derwent and so we've got photographs of what these buildings look like so then to see the water levels drop and to see the buildings emerge at the bottom has been fascinating we've got them here they're laminated so they're not going to get damp in the rain but this one look at the arches on that tower above the buildings yes this is the viaduct that we drove over coming here and as you say, the hall, it is a beautiful building. It's magnificent, isn't it? <gasps> Look at that. The great trees that surround it. Exactly. And this is a photograph of inside the hall, one of the fireplaces and some of the magnificent oak panelling. Very ornate. And that's the front of the hall. It was built in 1672 and then it was bought in about 1866 by the Duke of Norfolk. And eventually he sold the hall and all the estate, all the cottages and farms to the Derwent Valley Water Board in the 1930s. And then it was demolished and flooded. All we can see now is just it's piles a pile of, of rubble. Stones, mm. Piles of stones, yeah. Mm. Where did everybody go? Derwent Valley Water Board built a housing estate at Yorkshire Bridge to rehome people. Now, when you think that the people that lived here, they didn't have electricity, 
they didn't have inside toilets so you know it was a very I think an idyllic way of life in many ways but quite isolated so when they were rehoused some of them in the this modern housing estate it was a an improvement on on the houses that they'd had was there any resentment though I think there was resentment to some extent but not as there would be today if you're going to do something similar today I think there would be a lot more of an outcry can we edge along a little bit more because what's protruding from the water is a very strange it's like an arched roof it's quite Grecian looking isn't it what is it it's a pump house that was built by Don't Valley Water Board. I can see the top of the doorway. Yes. Well, it, the whole building was out of the water up to a week ago, and it's suddenly filled. That's just with rainfall? And with water coming off the moors. We can walk along a little bit, but we do have to be careful because, you know, that's quite sticky, that mud, and it's a very slippery slope it down is. to the water. It is. The Edale Mountain Rescue had to be called out twice, I believe, to rescue people who were stuck in the mud there are one or two wellies and boots over there in the mud still (laughs) Still left (laughs) that people have left behind there were lots and I mean hundreds of people came to have a look which is nice that people are interested in the history but unfortunately one or two people a minority of people either got stuck in the mud or they were defacing some of the stones or taking away items from the site which we tried to discourage because obviously we don't want that to happen it's a historical site it means a lot to the people who lived here or who had family here there's a fascination though as to what lies beneath there is a fascination Mm. because it's normally under the water and people know there are villages there there is a fascination with that now i think we best go and take a wee bit of shelter i think so that rain has set in well and truly Even though it is such a wet day, there are quite a lot of people have come down this grassy slope close to where I'm standing and they, like me, are looking out across this slip of water. Hello. We're making a radio programme, Open Country, for Radio 4. Why have you come to see the Ladybower Reservoir at this point? Well, you can see the remains, can't you, of the villagers. So we thought while we're here we might as well take a look. See for ourselves, that's it. Yeah, it's almost macabre yeah. that people want to come and see them. When you yeah. hear people saying it was drowned and it was, it tells a story, doesn't it? When people say that it's been drowned and sacrificed and yeah, but it was in a way. I suppose the people that lived here that had to move out of their homes, they, it probably was quite a difficult thing for them, wasn't it? So I think yeah. it is quite a sort how of, hard we would find yeah, it now. I would if someone suddenly said, "I want to build a mm. reservoir where your house is. You've got to move out." Mm. It's a bit yes. of history, I suppose, isn't it? And people want a part of that, I suppose, don't they? I used to drive a regular bus service down here, so the last time it was this low, I actually saw it in 1976. It was like running a coach strip because you used to have to do a commentary and had people from Australia on the bus and I was explaining what used to be here and they'd no idea. It's a bit creepy, actually, I find down here. Creepy? I do, I think, knowing what used to be here and everybody having to move. I'm on the access road towards the ruins of the old church. I didn't mean to stop you as a cyclist, but we sort of got a bit tangled up on the pathway. Were you doing this a few months ago when the water levels were really low? Several times. So we've watched it all emerge. Even the school gates came out of the water. Yes. It's very busy with cyclists. This is today. Of all ages. (laughs) 
lots more people than we normally see around here. I think there's a fascination with the ruins. What is it that people are hoping to capture or see? Or what? It's almost like the mystique of the place. It's kind of a, a sadness that you're out of touch with, but you can still see. It's a haunted kind of ghostly place, especially when it's misty. Yeah. I'm with someone who has a very special connection to the village that once was here, and that's Malcolm Thorpe. I was born in um, January 1940, born in the schoolhouse. And those two little pillars that you can see sticking out now, that was the entrance into the school and the schoolhouse off the main road that came from Ashupton to Derwent. How come you were born in a schoolhouse? Well, we actually lived in the schoolhouse. My mum was the caretaker to the school. Look across the water now. Look at the folk on the far side there. They were climbing over the rubble of, that was the church? That was Derwent Church. Yeah, there's some beautiful carved stones still there at the moment. There's one, the date stone from the church, 18... I forget exactly the date, but that's still a beautiful stone there. Well, I was hearing earlier that at one point it had a beautiful spire which protruded above the level of the water. That's correct. They decided to leave the spire as a feature and it stood there till 1947. But in 1947, it was a, a drought, not quite as bad as this, but people started swimming out to it and climbing it and as the water went down the, the base of the spire came accessible to people and it was a bit dangerous it had a little spiral staircase and they thought that might collapse so they decided that they'd uh, blow it up now my father was working in the general maintenance department at that time and so they gave me dad the I don't know whether it was a pleasure or what, but my father actually pressed the plunger when they actually blew it up in 1947. So they set dynamite? That's right, yeah, and just collapsed it, yeah. When the waters went down so low, thousands of people came to look. There was a curiosity factor there. It is curious, and I call it nosy at times. But How did you all feel about that? Well, I suppose I used to feel a bit excited to come in to see where I was born, but after a while, it used to sort of upset my mum a little bit because she thought people were wandering in her house, even though it was only ruins then. She used to say, people are actually walking in my front room. She didn't like it, really. Oh. Yeah. This place, too, has a wartime history, Malcolm. So shall we go a little bit further up the Derwent Valley? You can tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I can remember about the Dambusters, yeah. I can fill you in on that. So I've come about two miles up the Lady Bar Reservoir. You come to this enormous, heavy stone dam. Set on the top are two very elaborate towers. And there is two coming down on, on this side into Derwent. This immense flood, this gush of water. It's tremendous. There must be anything up to 20 million gallons of water a day coming through there now. This is a place which has a very special story from World War II. Yes, when they decided that uh, they would uh, try and burst the dams in Germany, they looked around all over the country to find dams that were pretty much the same as those in Germany. And of course they discovered Derwent. So this is where they decided to train the Lancaster squadron to actually bomb them. And of course anybody who's seen the film Dam Busters will recognise those two towers straight away because they were in it. Yep, this is where they did all the practising. They came through the hillside, that you, over the hills that you can see right up the top, then they followed the valley right down, and as they got to the top end of Derwent, they dropped 
quite low because they had to drop this bomb at a certain height and they did all the low flying round here so you can imagine stood here and seen a Lancaster bomber almost at our height flying through here. What a sight that must have been. I mean the locals must have known. No, well maybe they didn't know the, what was going on. The locals didn't know anything. They wondered what was going on. Some of the local farmers complained because it was upsetting the hens laying and cows and milk. They didn't know at all till the news broke that they'd you know, when they actually bombed the dams in Germany. And that's when my mum and them realised what all this noise had been about. So she would have heard all oh, that? She used to look out the window and see the Lancasters flying past. The dams and the reservoirs in themselves are great feats of engineering, but they have become really busy tourist attractions. And I'm standing alongside the Derwent. It's the connecting stream between the reservoir of Derwent and Lady Bower. And I'm with Councillor Barry Lewis of Derbyshire County Council. And Barry, you have a responsibility for tourism. So it's quite interesting to come here today. It is bursting with people. Car park is full. There are walkers, cyclists, people out with the dogs. They've come to see this engineered landscape. Very much so. For a weekend in December, it's pretty cold and yet all these people are here just to see this amazing landscape. Is it the engineering that they come to see, or are they coming to the Peak District thinking it's a wholly natural landscape? This is an interesting one. I mean, here, if you look around us, uh, it's as much a man-made landscape as it is a, um, a natural landscape. So you've got the forestry, you've got the reservoir itself, you've got great pieces of engineering like the massive water pipes that we have in front of us over there and of course at the minute that they're seeing a landscape that they haven't seen in decades. Is it an important part of the tourist element of this part of the Peak District? Yes, if you look at the Peak District generally it is a landscape absolutely stuffed with prehistoric archaeology, industrial archaeology, medieval archaeology, it's, it's there for all to see. So when something like this sort of a magically appears out of the water, it's just another element that you know adds to the sort of overall mix. These dams were built by human hand. Yes. The reservoirs were created to bring clean water to the people of the industrial cities all around the Peak District. Exactly. And there was a cost in that, in lives and in the loss of people's homes and farms. Exactly. So there is a very important cultural story within that that cannot be forgotten and only brought to the surface once every... 20 years because the water levels fall low. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's also salutary in the sense that we have to think about how we provide infrastructure for growing cities and towns in the future as well. We do need to think carefully about how we manage that other precious resource that we have, which is our landscapes. I've come about halfway up Derwent Reservoir. As we walk along, it's beautifully peaceful. I'm with Dr Bill Bevan, who's an archaeologist. There are a few people, maybe there's a fellow coming running down, there are a few cyclists, people out walking, a dog, but it's serene. This is not how this particular part of the reservoir used to be, is it, Bill? That's right. So if you go back over 100 years, maybe 120 years, and you're walking along the road we've just walked along, this would have been a very different scene. Most people, when they come here, they think this is just a natural valley. And, of course, we've got the steep-sided valley, which we just passed. But you get here and you look around and you look between the trees. One thing you notice is that suddenly there are flat, level areas, big, level terraces. And that's a clue to what this area was over 100 years ago. And those flat terraces were where rows of dormitories 
was stood. And those are the dormitories that housed the navvies who built Derwent and Howden reservoirs. So for about 15 years, you had a population of up to nearly a thousand people living in this area. So this little quiet woodland was a bustling community then. You had a part of the village set aside for families. Navvies who were married could bring their wives and their children here. They were kept slightly separate from the single men who were in these long dormitories. So this is sort of the gateway, the entrance to the village. So there were workers and their families mm -hmm. and they had every provision they needed? They did. There was a school, there was a hospital, there was the recreation hall, there was the public baths, post office, all sorts of shops, railway station, but most importantly to the navvies was the Derwent Canteen, the public house. It was known as Birchenlee? So the village official name was Birchenlee because that was the name of the little area, the little farm that had been here before they started to build the reservoirs. But everybody in the local area knew it as Tintown because of the corrugated huts that we built here. And yet I'm looking round and it's, you know, it's a completely natural environment. Mm. There's no traces to be seen of that? You can't see the huts themselves. The huts were all sold off at the end of the project to the highest bidder. Most of them went to the Ministry of Defence, 1916, for prisoner war camps. But one of the uh, married huts actually is in Hope, the village not far from here, and is now the hairdressers. But what we can see is the immense amount of terraforming the water board did to this area to create enough level ground to put the uh, huts on. What do you mean by terraforming? So terraforming is when you completely change the profile of the land and the shape of the ground. If we look towards where the village is now, we should see an incredibly steep valley side. But as we look down into the village, what do we see? We see very flat, level terraces, and they're huge. I mean, that's as long as a football pitch, I would yes. say, the one we can see. And it's about 20 metres wide. So one of the first jobs the navvies had to do was completely change the nature of the ground of the valley side to create the platforms to then build the houses on. What is there for us to see of this tin town? Right, well, apart from these terraces... Nearly everything is gone, but what we can see that's really tangible is right in the heart of the village, and that was uh, what survives of the Derwent Canteen. Yeah, let's do that. And I love the way you say what we can see in the village. You see that in your head. Oh, you I do. You see all those buildings and the school, and you see the families living in this place. And you, I can hear them as well. You can hear the chatter, you can hear the conversations on washing day. This would have been a totally different soundscape over 100 years ago. And there what we have is the sound of trainers running. Instead of hobnail boots. What was this workforce physically doing? Well, this workforce was doing everything to do with the construction of the dams. So that started with the construction of the railway line that would bring the stone from the quarry near Grindleford. Mostly they were building the two dams, and this is right between the Howden Dam and Derwent Dam. So if you were living here in sort of 1914 and you were one of the navvies here, your work would have been around you constantly. So you would have heard the sound of the, the construction on both sides. You're in the middle of a massive construction site, basically. There would have been the steam cranes, there would have been the, uh, the blasting. So this is, was a very, very different land then. Yeah, thousands of tonnes of stone. I mean, they, it's such a feat of engineering. They are. They are massive blocks. Mm. And it was very unusual to build dams like this, completely out of stone. And the nice thing about them, they add to the aesthetic appeal of the landscape today. Gosh, the rumble and the sound and the blasting. 
quite a lot of people have gone past on their bikes that are walking and we're up here on one of these terraces and they will have no idea of what was here before. Yeah, it's very easy just to cycle or walk by and not realise what you're passing at all. But if we go, say, into the centre of the village and look at Dillon Canteen, there's a bit more of a clue there that the eagle-eyed may be able to spot. Why did they go to such lengths in creating this model village? They had to at this time by law. So during the Industrial Revolution, navvies were the people who built Britain. They built the canals, the railways, all the infrastructure. But they were very mistreated, badly treated. So if you're a navvy, you were seen to be the lowest of the low. You were a violent, rough character. They had a bad reputation. But the companies who built the canals and the railways really abused the navvies. They would get them in a remote place. They would pay them good wages, which was the attraction. But then they would take most of the wages off them because the navvies usually had nowhere else to buy food, to buy the beer, or to get medical attention apart from, from the company. And everything was sold to them at a high premium. The living but, conditions, I presume, were pretty shabby. They were absolutely atrocious. So in the middle of the 19th century, the 1840s, conditions for navvies were so bad that it attracted the attention of Parliament. This was one of the wow. first building projects after that bill. Mm-hmm. But it was also the place where they really took it to heart. How do we make the best conditions for our navvies? And how, by doing that, do we engineer society so they work harder for us? So now we're right in the centre of the village and this is the famous Derwent Canteen. And this stone-lined cellar was the beer cellar. And it's probably the most prominent feature you can still see today. This probably was the heart of Navi society here in Tintown. This is where the Navis came to drink after a long shift. This is where they would talk. This is where they would complain about their bosses or their foremen, etc. This is where the banter would happen. This started off being a temperance canteen to make sure that the navvies didn't get too drunk, they didn't sell alcohol. But two landlords were kicked out, literally, out the front door. The water board gave up on that idea and they introduced beer here. I think the water board realised, keep your navvies full of beer and they'll work for you. (laughs) But when these reservoirs were being built, Derwent would have had no inkling about what was going to happen to them because that valley, the lower valley, wasn't flooded, Lady Bar, until the mid-1940s. That's right. So, yeah, two totally different construction projects. The navvies here were not responsible for Lady Bower and the people in Derwent Village did not know that their village was going to be flooded. The other thing that strikes me, Bill, is that people have come from far and wide to see Lady Bower at its lowest level and the remnants of Derwent Village. Yet, just up the roadway, barely a mile or so, there is another story of a village which has disappeared. You know, why, why are they not both celebrated in the same way? I think because you could see this any time that you like. It just is here in the landscape. It gets a bit forgotten. What's intriguing, I think, to people about Derwent Village, you can't see it. It's underneath the reservoir. And then as the water levels drop, when we have a dry year, then it re-emerges. And I think there's that sense of an event, an occasion being created, and the re-emergence of this lost village with its ghostly appearance out of the waters. Like many others who've come to Lady Bar, I couldn't resist 
coming to see the stones for themselves, getting very close to the rubble of the former village. So I picked my path along the bottom of the hillside and down towards the edge of the water. There is a path you can take without going out into the, the, the slippery mud. And you walk towards what was the church and is now just a pile of rubble. You know it was a significant building because you can still see beautiful pieces of stone which have been carved. The date stone of the church, 1867, is just lying in this pile of rubble. This really is a very fleeting experience because even in the 24 hours that I have been here, the waters have risen enough after the heavy rain to almost cover the roof of the pump house, which yesterday I could see so clearly. And that lapping water, that's a reminder that the waters are coming back to reclaim this history of Derwent Village. I will probably never get to stand here again.